Welcome to Celebrate Poe, Episode 33, Bodies Under the Church. Hello, my name is George Bartley, and I'm glad that you're taking time from your busy schedule to listen to this episode. But first, I would like to ask you a favor. Please click the subscribe button for Celebrate Poe so you don't have to worry about downloading a podcast episode. It should automatically come to you. I have so many fascinating episodes planned for the future, and you'll not want to miss a one. This episode ranges from a very short look at uh, the history of the early Episcopal Church in America, to the Richmond Theater Fire of 1811, to some of our country's earliest architects, all leading up to the return of the ghost of Mr. Poe in this episode, and a brief examination of Mr. Poe's relationship with religion while he was growing up. Now, if you ask most people, they would automatically assume that Poe was some kind of raving atheist. Such individuals as Rufus Griswold went out of their way to trash Poe's reputation, and Griswold's negative and incorrect impressions of Poe and his works have frequently become accepted as factual. Griswold tried to give the impression that Poe was a despicable person, and religion or belief in a higher power played no part in Poe's life. But the real answer to the question, what was Poe's relationship to a higher power, is far more complex. It is said that especially during his adult life, Poe liked to say something for effect, to startle or surprise, and often came off as irrelevant. But uh, his ideas regarding the universe and man's relationship with God in his masterpiece Eureka show the thoughts and feelings of a sincere seeker. Poe felt that Eureka, first a lecture and then a small book, was the culmination of his career. The year of his death, Poe wrote, I have no desire to live since I have done Eureka. I could accomplish nothing more. Of course, this podcast will cover Eureka in substantially more detail later on and hopefully give it the attention it deserves. Now, let me stop here and point out that I will often come across a subject or topic that I will mention, but I add something like, uh, I'll go into this in more detail later. I I like to script out my podcasts ahead of time, and uh, if a situation like that occurs, I stop and copy and paste something about that topic in a remember to talk about list to help me to remember to talk about it later. I don't want to be like the parent or teacher who says, we'll talk about more about that later, with every intention of delving into that subject later and then promptly forgetting about it. Talking about every subject, subject when I run across it would result in endlessly going down rabbit holes. You probably know by now, I think the most logical way to approach Poe's life is to take a chronological look at his life and works. You can't talk about everything at one time. At the same time, I know with the mass of information uh, that we have regarding Poe, I don't want to start something and then never finish it. Hence, the need for a list of topics to come back to later in more detail. Otherwise, I would probably forget the subject and go off to something else. And I'm hoping this makes sense. Uh, By the way, I'm going to go back to all my earlier episodes. I have transcripts of everything and find any place where I said something like, I will talk more about that in detail later and then put it on this list. Well, back to Poe's youth. 
Now, this episode deals with the young Poe's relationship with established religion while a child, specifically the Episcopal Church in Richmond, Virginia. But first, a little bit of background might be helpful. The Episcopal Church is based in the United States and is a member of the Worldwide Anglican Communion. The Episcopal Church was actually formed after the American Revolution. It became separate from the Church of England, whose clergy are required to swear allegiance to the English monarch as supreme governor of the Church of England. And, of course, that wouldn't work with a nation like the United States that was trying to become independent from England. In fact, at first, any person attempting to lead a church in the United States had to cross the Atlantic to be ordained by bishops in England. Transatlantic voyages actually claimed the life of one out of every five ministerial candidates in the 18th century. So obviously not having an American bishop to ordain church leaders was a problem right there. By the way, many individuals are confused when I use the word Episcopal and when to use the word Episcopalian. I know I didn't feel sure about which term to use for years. Now, think of it like this. Use Episcopal as an adjective, such as the Episcopal Church. The word Episcopal, in this case, describes which church you're talking about. Episcopalian is the noun form. For example, a person who belongs to the Episcopal Church is an Episcopalian. At least, that's the way I remember it. Anyway, uh, historically, members of the Episcopal Church have frequently been viewed as leaders in the community in politics, business, science, education, and the arts. So stick a pin in that idea while we look briefly at the Richmond Theater Fire of 1811. Richmond's first theater was built in 1786, and two years later, the Virginia Ratifying Convention met in the building. The Virginia Ratifying Convention was a convention of 168 delegates who met to ratify or reject the United States Constitution, which had been drafted at the Philadelphia Convention the year before. And what a list of delegates that convention included. Delegates such as John Marshall, who became the first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Patrick Henry, the Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death guy, and future presidents James Madison and James Monroe. That building was destroyed by fire. Fire, as you will learn far more later on, was an ever-present danger in the 19th century. A new brick theater was built around 1810 with an orchestra section, a first balcony, and upper balcony. The theater also had very narrow doorways, a factor that was to later prove deadly. A benefit of the theater was scheduled for December the 23rd, 1811, but was postponed to the day after Christmas, largely because of the death of Eliza Poe, Poe's mother. She was that well thought of by the community, as well as extremely bad weather. The theater was packed, and the building caught on fire. For details on what took place, why not listen to episode 12 of this podcast? Episode 12, America's First Disaster, has been online for just little over one month, a little over one month, and is already one of the most downloaded episodes of this podcast. I'm not going to repeat all the details of that episode, but I do encourage you to listen to it. That's Episode 12, America's First Disaster. 
And according to my stats, uh, there were also a higher percentage than usual of downloads for episode 13, which compares two American heroes, Gilbert Hunt with Father Michael Judge. Gilbert Hunt was an African-American individual who saved dozens of lives during fires at the Richmond Theater as well as the Virginia Penitentiary, while Michael, Father Michael Judge was a priest who happened to be gay and was the first official uh, death as a result of the bombing of the Twin Towers during 9-11. Now, getting back to the Richmond Theater fire, At least 72 people died during that fire, including the governor of the state and many of Richmond's leading citizens. The city of Richmond decided to build a church over the site of the theater as a monument to those who died from the fire, many of their ashes and dead bodies unrecognizable. To design such a structure, a man from South Carolina by the name of Robert Mills was chosen. He had been a student of Irish architect James Hoban, and he later worked with Mr. Hoban in designing the White House, though it appears Mr. Hoban did most of the work. In 1802, Mills became an associate and student of Benjamin Henry Latrobe, who designed the United States Capitol building. Mills also designed the Virginia State Penitentiary, which has been referred to as the most significant prison building in the United States. Robert Mills later designed a Washington Monument in Baltimore, Maryland. The Washington Monument is located just a few blocks from the huge Enoch Free Public Library with its extensive Edgar Allan Poe collection. And in 1836, Robert Mills won the competition for the design of the Washington Monument, or Washington Monument, on what was to become the Mall in Washington, Washington, D.C., Construction on what has become his best-known work began in 1848. However, it was interrupted by such forces as the Civil War and was not finished until 35 years after Mills' death. In addition to the Washington Monument, Robert Mills also designed the uh, the, the, uh, Department of Treasury headquarters uh, and uh, the uh, Patent Office Building, now National Portrait Gallery. So it can be said that Robert Mills, along with his circle of friends, designed some of the most historic and iconic buildings in the United States. In other words, he had developed quite a reputation. Now, the design of a possible church-slash-monument to replace the Richmond Theater was relatively controversial at first. The church committee responsible was headed by John Marshall and independently chose Robert Mills, as well as his former teacher Benjamin Henry Latrobe, to serve as architect. A committee dealing with two architects, and each believes he has the job. What could possibly go wrong? Well, Mr. Latrobe submitted his designs and believed that the committee had approved his plan. But the committee also approved the plan submitted by Mr. Mills. Awkward! The committee requested an alternate plan from Mr. Latrobe, but he refused, basically because he felt slighted. After all, Mills had previously worked as his assistant. But eventually, and this says a lot about Latrobe's character, he gave the assignment to Mr. Mills and wrote glowingly to the committee regarding Mr. Mills' talents. It may sound creepy to us today to build a church not just as a memorial, but over the bodies physically. 
but perhaps in some way that we don't completely understand today, people in the 19th century had a very difficult attitude towards death, largely because death was often more of a constant presence. Robert Mills later designed 18 county courthouses in his home state of South Carolina. After including numerous features to make Monumental Episcopal Church more resistant to possible fire, Mills was famous and designed the Charleston District Record Building, better known as the Fireproof Building. The Fireproof Building is believed to be the oldest building of fireproof construction in the United States. Mills also designed various buildings for the University of South Carolina, courthouses, and jails. Greetings, Mr. Bartley. Well, greetings, Mr. Poe. Glad to see that you're here. Today we're going to talk about your family's relationship to religion while you were a child. Yes, Mr. Bartley, and I could not help but overhear... Not to say that I engage in eavesdropping, but I could not help but overhear that members of the Episcopal Church were often leaders in the political and business community. Some might say that's still true, but it's almost a no-brainer that when the Allens chose a church to attend, Mr. Allen's business interests led him to the Episcopal Church. This was true even though Mr. Allen was raised as a Scotch Presbyterian, as you know, and could be best described as an infrequent churchgoer. Of course, my foster mother, or Ma, Frances Valentine Allen, was deeply religious and attended church every Sunday. On April the 13th in 1814, John Allen purchased pew number 80 at Monumental Episcopal Church for $340. Mr. Bartley, would you be able to discover how much that $340 is worth in your current society? Yes, I, I have it right here. Why am I not surprised? $340. That would be worth almost $5,100 in today's currency in the United States. If you want to look at it from an investment standpoint, that would be nearly $100 a Sunday if you attended church each week. One might say that unlike Mrs. Allen and myself, John Allen would be likely to only attend church from time to time, if only for networking purposes and maintaining contacts in Richmond. It almost seems that Mr. Allen may have looked at church as a way of promoting his business, not for its spiritual benefits. Be that as it may, Mr. Bartley, you may not be cognizant that an Episcopal service has a great deal of reading and lessons from the Old and New Testaments. Mr. Poe, you may not realize that I attend the Episcopal Church. Now the services at uh, the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., or at Christ Church Cathedral in Indianapolis online. And I'm quite aware that the Episcopal Church covers a great deal of the Bible. Biblical text is an essential part of the service or liturgy. I can only surmise that I really did not think that much about the Scriptures while a child, but apparently I absorbed a great deal of religious teachings during my weekly exposure to the Christian Bible at Monumental Episcopal Church. This probably resulted in my inclusion of numerous biblical allusions in my works. Illusions that I am quite confident you will point out in future episodes. Can you give me an example or two now? 
One may find many biblical allusions and references in stories and environments that refer to the scriptures, but may seem quite removed from the Christian Bible, sometimes diametrically opposed. But today I will utilize two of my more familiar works. In the Telltale Heart, many scholars believe I utilized a passage from the Gospel of John. Specifically, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to his Father, certainly a pivotal moment in Christ's existence. In the Telltale Heart, I expressed the obsessions of the murderer with the old man's hour had come certainly a pivotal moment in the old man's existence. And in The Raven, perhaps the most famous poem ever written by an American, I wrote, Then methought the air grew denser, perfumed from an unseen censer, swung by seraphim whose footfalls tinkled on the tufted floor. Here the despondent narrator makes a reference to an incense burner called a censer, C-E-N-S-E-R, used in many Episcopal, Roman Catholic, and Greek Orthodox services. And a seraphim is a six-foot winged creature who flew around God's throne and praised him by repeating holy over and over. In a similar way, the raven can only say the one word nevermore and repeats it over and over. I would like to think that in the context of this very tragic poem, the winged being of the title is not comforting or affirming, but anxiety-producing and menacing. And of course, there is the line, Is there, is there balm in Gilead? Tell me, tell me, I implore. Now, balm, one must remember, is both a literal balm utilized to heal wounds as well as a spiritual cure. Here, the depressed narrator is expressing his deep desire for a cure for the devastating emotions he is experiencing. And numerous individuals would describe Gilead as an area in Jordan. In a lesser-known work that I wrote in 1841, I wrote, as we find cycle within cycle without end, yet all revolving around one far distant center, which is the Godhead, life within life, the less within the greater, and all within the Spirit divine. Wow, Mr. Poe, you must have really taken in the words and teachings you were hearing as a child in church, and then put your own slant on them later. Yes, Mr. Bartley, and when, when I was not yet three years old, I was baptized on January the 7th, 1812, apparently at Monumental Episcopal Church. This is the first time that uh, Alan, the name Alan, appeared in writing as my middle name, and I was confirmed to become a member of the church by Bishop Channing Moa, M-O-O-R-E. You may find it interesting that Bishop Moa was only the second bishop of the Diocese of Virginia. Mr. Poe, this may be a difficult question to answer, but do you have any impressions about the role of Christianity during the 19th century in the United States? Yes, Mr. Bartley, that is a most interesting subject to ponder. One must remember that Christianity played a dominant role in the United States. 
This naturally was before Darwin's theory of evolution and the horrors of the war between the states. One should not be surprised that there was a general consensus of the existence of God. For example, one of the basic subjects that I was required to take at the London School of the Mrs. Dilberg was the Catechism of the Church of England. Of course, this was when I was attending boarding school as a young boy in England. Uh, and I also had lessons of a religious nature at the school of Reverend Bransby when I attended Stoke Newington in England. The description of my school life in England as a boy was based loosely on my school days at Bransby's Manor, pointing out that there were required morning and evening services every Sunday. Mr. Poe, I'm glad that you mentioned that. I really searched to find anything you might have written about church or religious institutions as a youth and did run across a section from your story, William Wilson, that may reflect some of your impressions of life and church at boarding school in England. Would you read it for us? It is about three minutes in length. Certainly, Mr. Bartley. It gives me perhaps as much pleasure as I can now in any manner of experience to dwell upon minute recollections of the school and its concerns. Steeped in misery as I am, misery, alas, only too real, I shall be pardoned for seeking relief, however slight and temporary, in the weakness of a few rambling details." These, moreover, utterly trivial and even ridiculous in themselves, assumed to my fancy adventitious importance as connected with a period and a locality when and where I recognized the first ambiguous monitions of the destiny which afterwards so fully overshadowed me. Let me then remember. The house, I have said, was old and irregular. The grounds were extensive, and a high and solid brick wall, topped with a bed of mortar and broken glass, encompassed the whole. This prison-like rampart formed the limit of our domain. Beyond it we saw but thrice a week, once every Saturday afternoon, when, attended by two ushers, we were permitted to take brief walks in a body through some of the neighboring fields, and twice through Sunday. Now this is what I was looking for, Mr. Poe, something you wrote that could possibly refer to your religious experience as a youth. Please, Mr. Bartley, be so kind as to allow me to continue. When we were paraded in the same formal manner to the morning and evening service in the one church of the village, of this church the principal of our school was pastor. With how deep a spirit of wonder and perplexity was I wont to regard him from our remote pew in the gallery, as with step solemn and slow he ascended the pulpit. This reverent man with countenance so demurely benign, with robes so glossy and so clerically flowing, with wigs so minutely powdered, so rigid and so vast, could this be he who of late, with sour visage and in snuffy habiliments, administered the draconian laws of the academy? Oh, gigantic paradox, too utterly monstrous for solution! Now, Mr. Bartley, unless you need me any more, I must take my leave. Farewell, Mr. Bartley.
Farewell, Mr. Poe. Let me conclude this episode by quoting from the noted Poe scholar C. Alfonso Smith, Ph.D., the first Edgar Allan Poe professor at the University of Virginia and head of the Department of English at the United States Naval Academy. Dr. Smith wrote regarding Poe, If nevermore seems at times the refrain of all his singing, evermore was the note on which he closed. If despair seemed the companion of his more solitary moods, it was only that faith and hope might abide with him at the end. If death seemed to loom too large and menacing in his visions, it was over and beyond its vanishing rim that he saw rise the beckoning and unclouded life. It almost seems that Dr. Smith is referring to Poe's aspirations regarding an ultimate hope for the victims of fear and oppression. He goes on to say, In every poem and story of Poe's over which blackness seems to brood, there is the unmistakable note of spiritual protest. There is the evidence of a nature so attuned to love and light, to beauty and harmony, that denial of them or separation from them is a veritable death in life. Poe fathomed darkness, but climbed to the light. He became the world's spokesman for those dwelling within the shadow. But his feet were already upon the upward slope. Out of it all he emerged victor, not victim. Sources for this episode include The Episcopalians by David Hine and Gardner H. Shattuck, Robert Mills, America's First Architect by John Bryan, Edgar Allan Poe, A Critical Biography and History of the American Theater, Volume 1, by author Hobson Quinn, The Poe Log, A Documentary Life of Edgar Allan Poe by Dwight R. Thomas and David K. Jackson, Edgar Allan Poe, The Man, by Mary E. Phillips, The Raven's Tale, by Cat Winters, Poe in the Bible, by Dr. C. Alfonso Smith, and The Raven, as well as William Wilson, by Edgar Allan Poe. And check out my podcast website at celebratepoe.buzzsprout.com. Click on the episode you want to learn more about to see show notes and a transcript. For this episode, there is also an interesting link to a two-minute video about Monumental Episcopal Church. Starting with the next episode, Celebrate Poe will concentrate on a volcanic eruption in Indonesia, a natural disaster that was not only the worst volcanic eruption in recorded history, but which, oddly enough, may have played a crucial part in Poe's works. <music>